Great, thank you, Mike. Um, yes, as you've heard, the timing of this uh, lecture has been unusually good. Um, it was scheduled for this date originally because, as many of you will be aware, tomorrow is actually International Holocaust Remembrance Day. So this is why this lecture on the theme of human rights was initially scheduled for today. I was lucky, I suppose, that David Cameron cho chose yesterday to make a speech to the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, where he talked at great length about the UK's historic respect for human rights, and then criticized the probably the most prominent institution in Europe, which has the job of promoting human rights in the here and now, the European Court of Human Rights. So there was an, an interesting tension um, in his speech yesterday. It was an interesting tension also highlighted in the Guardian news report of his speech, or at least not so much the, the news report of his speech, the, the media preview of his speech, the David Cameron is going to say today report in yesterday's Guardian. Because they illustrated Cameron's attack on the European Court of Human Rights with a picture, a photograph, of Cameron signing a book accompanied by a survivor of the concentration camps to mark tomorrow's commemoration of the Holocaust. So it was a fascinating juxtaposition of Cameron at the one hand criticizing the direction of travel of human rights law in Europe today, and at the same time, he was, if you want, re-emphasizing the UK's formal commitment to human rights, to Holocaust remembrance, to the idea that human rights are integral to the UK as a nation and to our sense of morality. And I was thinking to myself, this actually fits extremely well with the theme of my lecture today. I've picked a rather grand title, The um, Triumph of Human Rights. But what I want to focus on specifically is the interesting tension that runs through discussions and debates about human rights at the moment, nicely illustrated by what I've just referred to. Because on the one hand, human rights has had enormous success at projecting itself and being taken up as what some have described as the paramount progressive ideology of our contemporary Western civilization. It's had immense success at becoming established in academia, where once it was perhaps the province of a few marginalized lawyers, it's now spread and become integrated in multiple different faculties. It's had great success among NGOs and civil society engagement, where the focus is now relentlessly on human rights initiatives, as exemplified by the prominence of organizations such as Amnesty International. It's had immense success as a discourse within law, my own specific field. There was a time when law was a, a conservative small c, and often indeed big c discipline, which was very much focused on private law, where the public dimension of law, in particular in the UK, was narrow and restricted. 
That's changed quite dramatically over the last couple of decades. And human rights law has now come in both international law and domestic law to exercise huge influence. So this is the, if you want, the triumph of human rights. The historian Samuel Moan has, recent, Moan has recently described it as the, the last utopia, the sort of uh, the final utopian dream in a, in a godless age, in a sort of post-enlightenment age, with the collapse of narratives such as socialism, communism, even perhaps free market libertarianism since 2008 that human rights remains the last sort of utopian, progressive dream which can claim to unite mankind. Even internationally, there have been some very interesting developments. The countries that historically used to reject human rights discourse, that attempted to marginalize it and dissociate themselves from it, have increasingly begun to engage with rights discourse. My example is the People's Republic of China, which for decades kept UN human rights standards at arm's length. Now, it still does so in many ways, but what's interesting is how the Chinese government has begun to engage with rights discourse, often trying to, if you want, use it in a manner that suits its own geopolitical objectives, as is often common among other governments. But there's been a transition from a refusal to engage in rights discourse to an attempt to ride the discourse, to use the discourse. So, for example, China is now regularly producing a response to the US, the US State Department's annual human rights report. The US State Department produces an annual human rights report which often focuses on rights abuses in China. China, for years, condemned the use of rights challenge the use of rights as a mode of tool of assessing Chinese society. Now, in an interesting shift, it's begun to produce its own human rights report on the United States, highlighting things like race discrimination, racial bias in the application of the death penalty, poverty levels, Guantanamo Bay, and so on, so on, so on, which in and of itself is interesting. It represents an interesting attempt to, if you want, engage, use, and perhaps manipulate rights discourse, which in a way demonstrates the triumph of that discourse, its, its inescapable nature. Having said that, there are deep tensions and divisions as to how rights, how human rights discourse should be understood. And in particular, there is a quite significant split between what I characterize as the minimalist school and the maximalist school. And these tensions, quite dramatically illustrated by David Cameron's speech yesterday, but they also arise in other contexts. What do I mean by the maximalist school? There are, as you know, an ever-growing number of human rights instruments. So, for example, recently, We've had the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities joining previous UN instruments on socioeconomic rights, civil and political rights, non-discrimination, the rights of the child, and so on. We have had a huge expansion in domestic law of protection for human rights, with certain constitutions, like the Brazilian Constitution at the moment, 
protecting 80 different rights and assigning the Brazilian Supreme Court with ultimate, ultimate responsibility for reviewing the extent to which Brazil, for example, complies with the right to food or the right to water. We have had organizations like Amnesty International move from a very specific focus on some very specific rights to a much broader engagement with what's often described as the full spectrum of rights, children's rights, socioeconomic rights, development rights, environmental rights. And all of these are examples of the maximalist vision of rights that see human rights as committed to promoting the interests of all people, to enhancing those interests, and sees them, if you want, as pushing out into socioeconomic terrain, environmental terrain, a social terrain, a whole variety of different areas of engagement. Now, contrast that to what I've described as the minimalist approach, which tends to conceptualize human rights as very much focused on protecting what Isaiah Berlin famously termed negative liberty, as protecting certain core integral elements of what it means to be human, usually focusing on protecting the individual against the state, and very much conceiving human rights as a, a narrow set of sacrosanct entitlements which risk being diluted by attempts to expand the language of human rights into new terrain. So when David Cameron stands up and says that there are real issues in the notion of human rights being applied by the European Court of Human Rights to find that the UK is in violation of the European Convention on Human Rights because it doesn't give the right to vote to prisoners, to simplify a complex judgment. What Cameron is effectively saying there is that this is a, an abuse of human rights because human rights are best understood as focused on this core of protection, very much focused on protecting the individual against an all-powerful state, protecting certain basic entitlements, and that it is wrong for the language of human rights and for human rights law to be put to uses that go beyond this core. And this is an interesting divide. It surfaces in all sorts of contexts. It surfaces politically, when politicians give out about overstretch of human rights concepts, or abuse of human rights concepts, or say things like it's ridiculous that Prison, a prisoner should be recognized as having a human right to vote. It surfaces in jurisprudential philosophical debate. Many of our leading contemporary political philosophers tend to analyze human rights and defend the notion of human rights as being focused on a quite narrow set of fundamental entitlements, often linked to trigger conditions where humanitarian intervention by one state in the affairs of another state may be justified. So John Rawls, the preeminent political philosopher of the last 50 years in, in his work, saw and engaged with human rights as effectively a sort of a minimum set, a minimum common morality in a way that we could all agree, 
violation of which was linked to the question of when was it legitimate to intervene in the affairs of another state. Ronald Dworkin and other leading legal and political philosophers have also tended to conceptualize human rights in a reasonably constrained manner and to express concern about overstretch of rights and the dilution of rights. So, for example, many have criticized the notion of a right to health, which is there and recognized in the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights. What does it mean to say you have a right to health? It's a nonsense notion. It's, it's vague, it's abstract, it's empty. Ridicule has sometimes been directed at the semi-sacrosanct text of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which talks about an entitlement to paid holidays. You know, how is that a right? How is that a fundamental right? And in law, for us lawyers, this distinction between a maximalist and a minimalist approach often surfaces in very interesting ways. Um, the Human Rights Act, for example, here in the UK, is designed in protecting co a core of rights. Judges sometimes express concern in the UK and elsewhere about um, human rights advocates trying to stretch the law too far in new and unexpected directions. Courts express concern about intervening in the field of socioeconomic rights adjudication. They're suspicious of it. They think it takes them into areas which human rights law was never designed to go, where human rights law was never designed to go. So you see this tension between maximalist and minimalist accounts of human rights surfacing in philosophical debates, in jurisprudential debates, in legal debates, in political debates. And it's a very deep division of views. So, for example, it surfaces every time that the European Court of Human Rights says you can't deport someone to Jordan because they may face torture evidence being used against them, evidence obtained by torture being used against them. And papers and politicians say, this is overstretch. This is too far. This is turning the European Convention Human Rights, a perfectly worthy instrument designed to be a type of Magna Carta for Europe, turning that into something that's much more all-embracing. And that's very questionable. So there is this tension here that exists. There are, I think, reasons to be concerned about overstretch of rights, the maximalist account. Human rights are supposed to sort of express a common morality to which, that we, can all, to which we all can subscribe to. The more they're stretched, the less common, perhaps, that morality becomes. Secondly, human rights are individual in focus, deontological in their focus. Whereas many areas of public decision-making adopt utilitarian reasoning, consequentialist reasoning, and so on. And there has to be a concern that the more issues, the more disputes the more areas of social action you try and package in a human rights package, the more other considerations start dropping out of the picture. So if you start talking about a right to health, 
or you start talking about a, a right to social security, you run the risk of the individual focused nature of rights discourse taking over an area where there may be legitimate grounds to take into effect economic utilitarian economic analysis, for example, or other considerations. There's a risk that rights will become diluted. The more they stretch, the more manipulable they can become, the more empty of content they become. There is a risk that rights will be used to expel politics, that rights may come along, and as they stretch over wider and wider terrain, that they expel the potential for political conflict, for, for serious disputes about how a society should be, should be organized, how it should be structured. These are, I think, legitimate concerns. However, when I say there are legitimate concerns here, I don't think it's appropriate to jump from recognizing those legitimate concerns to falling back into the, the safe shelter, the artificial security of the more minimalist, the minimalist concept of human rights. The minimalist concept of human rights is problematic. For one thing, it tends to be relentlessly backward-facing. It tends to be very, very good at talking about and engaging human rights problems that have existed in the past. Okay? So, when countries look back at the Holocaust and place Holocaust remembrance at the heart of education, there is a danger that that becomes the sole type of thing that triggers concern about human rights. So something like Guantanamo, or something like the beating of children, or something like the denial of welfare to basic welfare support to asylum seekers, well, that doesn't involve human rights because it doesn't involve the sort of absolute ab abuses that we associate with the Holocaust. In other words, the minimalist account in, in defining what counts a rights violation regularly looks backwards. It also is based on a very restrictive definition of the individual. It very much adopts a conventional, liberal, approach to defining what's important about the individual. So the individual pro is protected as a freestanding, self-sufficient, free-thinking rationalist who doesn't need much in the state, from the state, who isn't entitled to much from the state by way of right, except, to, he, except he or she enjoys an entitlement to be left alone. So we have civil and political rights. The individual can speak. The individual can associate. The individual gets a fair trial. The individual gets treated equally. But often the individual is not conceptualized as having a right to basic social support. Or, you know, the child growing up 
isn't deemed to have the right to have their autonomy as a child recognized. That the, the focus becomes the adult self-sufficient individual. And I think we need to be suspicious about minimalist accounts of rights that focus very much on that. Because of course, this, if you want, slightly atomized freestanding individual is the, 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 the classic figure around which an awful lot of 18th, 19th, early 20th century political, economic, social philosophies were built around. And we have learned over time that that's an artificial picture, that it, it, it distorts the complexity of our place in society, how we interact with others, and so on. The minimalist account also, by casting a shadow over so much of what's been accomplished in human rights discourse and law and theory and practice over the last 20, 30 years, finds itself in an uncomfortable position. Take the UN Convention on the Rights of Disabilities, the Convention on the Rights of the Child. These are major instruments which have achieved quite dramatic changes in terms of how utterly marginalized disadvantaged groups have been treated in societies across the world but they don't fit very well within the minimalist concept of rights. And as a consequence, their status is somewhat up for grabs. They're often dismissed as rhetorical and aspirational. In other words, so much of what's good about rights discourse and its ability to identify problems and to clearly identify what respect for human dignity requires, so much of what rights discourse can achieve gets left out of the picture with a minimalist account. So as a consequence, I think that retreating to the safety of the minimalist account, sort of, you know, embracing David Cameron's analysis of human rights, which is the UK is fine in how it respects human rights. Look at all that we've done in the past. That shuts off so much of what human rights law, practice, theory is possible so much of what it can achieve. It's an excessively minimalist, excessively constrained vision. Having said that, I want to return to the dangers of overstretch, the dangers of taking things too far. That human rights law, theory, practice, discourse, runs the risk of collapsing if it simply becomes a way of expressing your chosen political viewpoints. If you say, for example, austerity measures are a violation of human rights, as people have, there's a danger here. There's a danger that you're emptying human rights of any content that, we could, that could be linked to some sort of common morality. There's a danger that you're emptying it of rigorous substance and turning it into a useful way of articulating specific political viewpoints. Now, it may be the case that the spasm of austerity that the globe is locked into at the moment may result in fundamental human rights being taken away. The sort of fundamental rights that a maximalist account is happy to recognize, 
like rights to a dignified existence supported by social security. The right of disabled persons to receive support, substantial support, not just a few pounds every week and the promise of a carer eventually when whenever a borough council gets around to sorting out its priorities. But these are these need to be specific arguments grounded in rigorous argumentation, rigorously developed. So in other words, the maximalist account of rights is very prone to fuzziness. It's a danger that always lurks. But we can't retreat back into the artificial, somewhat fake, minimalist account of rights. It's conceptually flawed. It doesn't account, it can't deal with the success of human rights practice. It's ideologically, it's, it's framed in, excuse me, it's framed in very specific ideological terms which often go unchallenged. Instead, my argument is that we need to embrace maximalist accounts of human rights while still at the same time recognize that the content of rights, what rights require, is different from what perfect political morality might require. It doesn't translate into a specific political program. And what exactly rights require will always be, to some extent, the product of a process of political or legal contestation. We're always going to have arguments over what rights requires, and that's fine. But we also need, and I'll close on this note, to recognize that there is an integrity to rights argumentation. That the demand for it to reflect some notion of common morality, the demand for it to engage with concepts of human dignity and autonomy, the way in which it's shaped by international processes fed through the UN Council of Europe, these things are all very important. We can't retreat to the shelter of the minimalist approach. We need to, if you want, embrace the triumph of human rights, to see it not as a nightmare, but as a, as a sort of noble dream that we can continue to work with. Thank you very much. I understand it's implicit in what you've been saying that we're talking about the relationships effectively between individuals and governments. Um, is there anything we should be saying in relation to non-governmental organisations which have their own agenda and might potentially wish to use the rights which the governments have given for their own nefarious purposes? Sorry, is that, that clear? Um, or <laughs> Apologies if it isn't. I'm told one at a time is easier. Um, put your finger on a, on a really, very, really important issue. Um, maximalist accounts of human rights tend to be much more comfortable with what us lawyers call direct effect 
uh, sorry, horizontal effect, um, which is effectively where human rights are capable of being applied to regulate the conduct of private actors, to constrain international multinationals, to reshape company law so that it, it's more in conformity with human rights. More minimalist accounts of human rights tend to be very, very uncomfortable with that. At the same time, the wider you spread human rights, the more interesting becomes the question about who are human rights bearers? Can companies claim human rights? What are the circumstances in which they can claim them? So, for example, the decision of the US Supreme Court two years ago now in Citizens United, that, um, that, that sort of um, party, that sort of campaigning organizations can claim freedom of expression guarantees, which liberates them from electoral funding laws. That's problematic and is proving highly problematic in the US at the moment. So it's an interesting tension point, which both illustrates some of the concerns that might exist with a maximalist approach of human rights. But equally, the maximalist approach offers a way forward in regulating non-government organizations and is much happier at requiring them to fit within the rights framework. But then we need a clear debate and discussion as to what their rights should be, because Citizens United shows how that discussion can, frankly, in my opinion, go wrong. More questions? Is there, is there any theory in rights uh, discourse about how you judge which right is stronger when they conflict? For example, obvious example, someone's right to criticize religion versus someone else's right not to have their religion criticized. As just an example, I'm not saying these are rights in your definition, even maximally, but there are obvious conflicts that you can think of. How does rights talk decide this without lapsing into what you called uh, utilitarianism or looking at the consequences, which is a, I'm not saying it shouldn't do that, but it seems to morph into that naturally, unless you've got another answer. I'm conscious in making my argument briefly. I'm slightly loading the dice in favor of the maximalists approach, or at least what I call enge constructive engagement with the maximalist approach. One of the advantages, I think, with a more minimalist focus on rights is that it does produce a skepticism, and that skepticism can call into question certain attempts to expand the field of human rights that tends to trigger the type of conflicts you mentioned. For example, recent UN discussions, attempts in the UN Human Rights Council to make um, offense to religious belief, uh, to have it recognized as a rights violation, to effectively recognize a, a right to be free from offense. Now, that's an interesting development because that's an example of sort of the power of rights discourse and its tendency to expand and stretch. That there was a time when people supporting that viewpoint would have been arguing for a restriction on the right to freedom of expression. 
Now it's changed. Now all of a sudden, their claim has been couched in the language of rights to give it, to give it power and potency because it's linked to the language of rights. And there has to be concern that as the concept of rights stretches wider and wider and wider, the, the greater the potential for conflict. I personally think that there's enough rigor in rights law, theory, practice to sort out those conflicts. That there's enough um, tangible thing, there's enough tangible substance we can point to, that we can make use, make use of this to, to sort out those rights conflict, to get the best possible account. So for example, I'm reasonably confident as a discipline that human rights law as a discipline can produce reasonably good answers in this context. I'm happy with its trajectory. I'm happy with its capacity to deal with the many difficult issues it has to deal with. But it remains one of the potential downsides of the maximalist approach. I have a more practical question. How would you um, go about that critical engagement with the maximalist view? Would, for example, the recent distinction between rights and principles recognized by the TFEU after the Lisbon Treaty, would that be a good approach of critically engaging with the maximalist view? Not really, just on the specific approach you mention. Um, I, um, ooh, I'm trying to sort out my answer in a way that doesn't take 15 minutes. Um, EU law, it's a particular, actually, it's an, it, it, it illustrates many of these issues. Um, EU law has an interesting problem because it, 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 it potentially opens the way within its own framework to a highly maximalist account of rights that EU judges and the EU institutions have been quite, have tended to resist the logic of their own internal legal order. And there's, in the TFEU, the, the Lisbon Treaty for the Uninitiated, there is an attempt to use the language of principles as a bridging device in this context. I think it leaves a lot to be determined. And we're at the beginning of an engagement with EU human rights law. It's very much at early stages. And it's still, frankly, in a reasonably unconvincing and incohate concept. I think that principles, the language of principles and the language in the EU treaties are too general to be of much good. We need far more rigor and we need far more detailed engagement with how to balance rights, far more substantial analysis than are offered by the highly general language of the principles. Nice idea in theory, just simply doesn't provide the concrete substance that's required. Uh, Colm, 
one of the dangers, surely, of the maximalist approach is that judges are inevitably going to be involved in deciding questions of allocation of resources, economic resources. Uh, we've seen it in the South African Constitutional Court cases dealing with housing, water, health. Um, when you have judges getting involved in questions of allocation of resources, uh, they're, they're directly involved in political questions for which they are neither qualified nor for, <coughs> nor for which they have the necessary political legitimacy of uh, election. Um, how do you deal, and there's also the danger that like the US Supreme Court, the selection of judges may become a far more crucial issue uh, and a far more politically loaded issue. How do you deal with that under the, uh, the isn't that one of the dangers of the maximalist approach? Yes, this is an old debate among us lawyers. Um, yes, it is one of the dangers of the maximalist approach. Having said that, you see, the minimalist approach doesn't, pretends to avoid that, but actually doesn't. In fact, the minimalist approach doesn't give a, us any sort of clear dividing line. So the minimalist approach often says, if you keep the focus of rights narrow, you don't worry about judges going into resource allocation. Or you don't worry about them going into, into disputed questions of politics. But actually, that's not how the world works. Um, the right to fair trial, right, which is about as minimalist a right as you can get, is the basis for a legal aid system costing hundreds of millions. The, and the political issues, I mean, when the European Court of Human Rights was getting abused roundly for refusing, for, for finding that the UK couldn't send Abu Qatada back to Jordan, it was all good, old-fashioned, straightforward, freedom from inhuman degrading treatment, freedom from torture, fair trial principles. There wasn't resource allocation in sight. There wasn't socioeconomic right in sight. Courts and judging inevitably engage with resource allocation, inevitably engage with political questions. The question is, how can they engage with those issues in a way that respects democratic choice, respects their competence, respects their abilities as legal decision makers, and also respects the huge limitations of legal decision making? But the notion that min the minimalist account can satisfy all these questions while the maximalist account doesn't is, I think, fatally flawed. Minimalism just takes what judges do now or what, you know, what the government of the day would like them to do and say, this is what judges do and that's okay, they're not being polit political. And then anything beyond that starts becoming political. In other words, minimalism can't give a coherent account of, of the limitations it sees as one of its virtues. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you've been treated today to an eloquently delivered, persuasive, well-argued, and very relevant lecture. On your behalf, let me thank Colin for giving that lecture.